Well, let me welcome you to week two. It's the final week of this tiny little series where just last Sunday and this Sunday we are thinking together about perspectives, perspectives of Christmas. And as Sullivan mentioned a few minutes ago, we last week considered the incarnation of God, the, pers- the, uh, the story of the arrival of the Christ child uh, from the perspective of Joseph. What did Joseph think when Mary, his espoused wife, suddenly is with child? The surprise pregnancy occurs. And what was his view, his point of view of all of that? And we learned from Joseph. His experience was instructive for us that when our plans fall apart and when life disappoints and things don't go the way that we think they would or thought they would, uh, that we can respond wisely in the way that Joseph responded. Today, we're going to consider the other side of that relationship, and we're going to think about the incarnation from the perspective of the person who, to be sure, was the most involved in this arrival of God in the flesh, and that was the person of Mary. So today, we're going to think about uh, the perspective of Mary as it relates to the arrival of Christ. I want you to follow along as I read Luke chapter number 1 beginning in verse number 26. So the Bible says, And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, who was of the house of David. Now, by the way, stop right there. Do you remember from last Sunday, it was through the uh, detailed accounting of the genealogy of Jesus according to Joseph's family line that Matthew established that Christ qualified to be the Messiah. Remember that Matthew was writing primarily to a Jewish audience. He was writing to make the claim that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And so from a human perspective, even though Jesus was not the son of Joseph, Joseph's family must have been a descendant of King David. And so in Matthew chapter number one, Matthew is meticulous in outlining the fact that David, in fact, was the ancestor of Joseph, uh, who would marry this Mary and she would deliver the Christ child. So he says in verse number 27, this uh, angel was sent to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and wondered in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great. He shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. And then Mary said unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. 
Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. May I take a quick survey? Do you agree with God? Nothing shall be impossible. Amen? Well, he goes on to say, verse number 38, that Mary then responded in this way, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Now, it's not surprising, of course, that you find the name of Mary in this text mentioned over and over again. It's reasonable that this would be the case because this is the text that details the angel Gabriel's visit to Mary and his conversation with her. But I have to tell you, honestly, I think you would probably agree with this, that as Baptist people, uh, we probably uh, are a bit guilty of pulling back a little bit from a lot of talk about Mary. We don't give Mary a lot of headlines uh, in, in Baptist world. And I think one of the reasons that might be the case is because she is often referred to, not in, not in Scripture, but in many uh, faith circles, religious circles, uh, certainly in, in Catholicism, she is referred to by terms such as the Blessed Virgin or the, uh, the Blessed Mother or Mary the Mother of God. And we sometimes, I think, will tend, because we're uncomfortable with such titles, we will tend to sort of pull back from that a little bit and we can be guilty of kind of ignoring uh, this very important person in our faith history and not talking about her very much until it comes to Christmas. And you can't get away from talking about Mary at Christmas time. And so I thought it would be um, wise today for us to begin by thinking just for a couple of minutes about the person of Mary and what the Bible says about her and what are the things about Mary that we ought to be aware of and that we ought to celebrate. And at the same time, what are the things that Catholicism teaches about Mary uh, which have elevated her to uh, near idolatrous levels and I think that we ought to be wary of. So let, let me take just a couple of minutes to do that and I think you'll find this um, helpful. Let me begin by sharing with you four points of Catholic doctrine, what we would call Marian theology, what Romanism teaches about the person of Mary. Four things. Number one, maybe you'll write these down in your notes. Uh, Catholicism teaches that Mary was born without a sin nature. This is known as the doctrine of immaculate conception. Now, you may have always thought that immaculate conception meant that Jesus was miraculously conceived in the womb of Mary, which of course is true. But that's not what immaculate conception means in Catholicism. The doctrine of immaculate conception teaches that Mary, by the grace of God, was, was a person who had no sin nature, and that in fact Mary was sinless 
that she never sinned. That's official teaching out of Romanism. Now, we know that that's not true, don't we? Because the Bible says in Romans 3.23, how many have sinned? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And yet, that's one of the teachings that, um, that is uh, dominant in Catholicism. Number two, Catholicism teaches that Mary was a perpetual virgin. Uh, they teach the perpetual virginity of Mary, that she never conceived any other children, that she never delivered any other children other than Jesus. In fact, that she was a virgin her entire life. And, and yet, Matthew chapter 13 tells us that this is not the case. Matthew 13 says that Jesus had some half-brothers. And in fact, they're named in Matthew 13, verse number 55. These would have been the sons of, of Joseph, of course. Uh, and then, uh, thirdly, Catholicism teaches that Mary never died, but that she was simply carried into heaven. This is known as the doctrine of the assumption of Mary, that she was carried into heaven in the same way that the Bible says Enoch was carried into heaven, or that Elijah went to heaven without dying. Uh, Catholicism teaches the same of Mary. And then number four, uh, Catholicism teaches that Mary is a co-mediator for us uh, with Jesus uh, before God. That Mary uh, plays a role in our uh, need of a mediator. Uh, and yet, the Bible is very clear, isn't it, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, and that is who? It is the man Christ Jesus. And so Christ is our only mediator. And yet these four things are taught of Mary. No sin, perpetual virgin, assumed into heaven without dying, and a co-mediator for us. Now these things are not taught in the Bible, but let's talk about the things that the scripture does tell us about Mary. These things are worth noting. They ought to be celebrated. First of all, uh, the Bible teaches us that Mary, like Joseph, Mary, in her side of the family, was in fact a descendant of King David. And so the child Jesus was from both sides, both uh, Mary's family and Joseph's family, uh, he was descended from King David. We'll talk about that a little more in just a minute. Secondly, uh, the Bible teaches us that Mary was a virtuous young woman. That's what the word virgin means. It doesn't simply mean that she had never been with a man. What it means is that her virginity was evidence of her virtue, that she was a young maiden, a godly young lady. Number three, the Bible says that Mary remained present throughout the ministry of Jesus. And so once Christ began his earthly ministry at the age of 30, then she was present. She was there. As a part, I would simply say that Mary was faithful uh, in her role as a mother, certainly, but even faithful as a follower of Christ. Number four, uh, the Bible says that Mary was present at the crucifixion of Jesus. And so all the way to the end, uh, she's there when Jesus is dying on the cross. Uh, she's there, present, uh, lamenting, watching as her son suffers and dies. And then number five, Mary was present in the upper room following the resurrection. And so she was present there at the day of Pentecost. This is to say that she remained faithful even after the death and even after the resurrection 
uh, of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus, she remained faithful, uh, a faithful servant of the Lord. Now, those are things, obviously, that we ought to, that we ought to celebrate, right? These are, these are things that we ought to celebrate in Mary's life without idolizing her. And so let me challenge you to be aware of the role that she played. Be grateful for it and learn from it uh, without in any way, without even ever uh, intending or, or becoming uh, or getting close to being in any way um, idolatrous in your view of Mary. So regardless of what Catholicism or any other uh, uh, group might teach, uh, Mary is a virtuous young woman from whom we ought to learn, but she certainly is not a sinless co-savior. Here is what is true of Mary, and I'd love for you to write this down in your notes because this is the fact about Mary's life. This is to say that Mary was, a cho- uh, was chosen to fulfill a great purpose. If you want to put a banner over her life, that's what you would say. When I think about Mary in the Bible, Mary the mother of Jesus, here's what I know. She was chosen by God to do a really important thing. She was chosen by God to fulfill a great purpose. In fact, this, this was her own self-title uh, in the text that we read a moment ago. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. I am the servant of the Lord to do what it is that you want me to do. She was chosen by God to fulfill a great purpose. Now, earlier I mentioned to you just a moment ago that the Bible teaches us that Mary was a descendant of David, of King David. And we know this from the genealogy of Jesus, which is given in Luke chapter number uh, three. And one of the things that's interesting is that when you compare the genealogy of Christ in Luke chapter 3, with the genealogy that we saw last week in Matthew chapter number 1, they are different in, in several regards. And uh, one of those is that uh, the father of Joseph, which is listed in Matthew, is different than the father of Joseph, which is listed in Luke. Here's why. Because Luke is recording the genealogy on Mary's side of the family, he would not have included Mary, a female's name, in a genealogical record. And so she included Mary's husband, Joseph, who was the son of Eli, or Eli, uh, as he's named in in Luke chapter number 3. He was the son of Eli by his marriage to Mary. He was the son-in-law, would be the way that we would say it, of this man. And so what what Luke is doing is he is tracing the genealogy of Jesus on Mary's side. In fact, turn over there, just one page, to Luke chapter number 3. And let me take you over to verse number 32. Luke 3 and 32, where you find that uh, Luke uh, tells us that David was the son of Jesse. So he's tracing backwards from Jesus, backwards to David. He shows us that on Mary's side of the family, Jesus is a descendant of David. That's important. Then in verse number 34, he mentions Abraham. So in verse 34, Luke's genealogy has gone as far back as Matthew's genealogy went. Remember, Matthew went all the way back to Abraham. And Matthew made the point, Jesus is a son of Abraham, son of David. But he stopped at Abraham. Well, in Luke 3, 34, Jesus goes back to Abraham But he keeps going. He goes further back, all the way back 
to Adam. Look at verse number 38. When you come to the last verse of chapter number 3, Luke has traced the genealogy of Jesus, born of the woman, Mary, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Now, why do you think Matthew stopped at Abraham, but Luke went all the way back to Adam. Here's why, I believe. Because Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience to make the claim that Jesus was the king of the Jews and that he must be a son of Abraham and a son of David. But Luke's purpose was to write primarily to a Gentile audience and Luke was writing to proclaim Jesus is the savior of the world. And the savior of the world that was to come was first prophesied in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Do you remember this verse? God comes into the garden immediately following the sin of Adam and Eve. He covers them with animal skins to cover their nakedness. And then he looks to the serpent who had deceived Eve, who had led them into sin. He says to the serpent, God says, I will put enmity, hostility, between you and the woman, between your seed and the seed of the woman, and one day the seed, the child of the woman, will crush your head. If y'all are listening, shout amen. When Luke tells us about the birth of Jesus to Mary, who descended, he shows us all the way back through David, through Abraham, all the way back to Adam and Eve, he is showing us that the baby born in Bethlehem was in fact the promised seed from Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15. He is the one who came to crush the head of the serpent and to set sinners free. Amen? That's the purpose of that, of that important genealogy. And so when you think about Mary's life, don't think of her in, in idolatrous terms at all. But don't minimize her significance either. What you need to know about Mary is that her great purpose was to serve as the pure vessel for Christ to enter the world and do exactly what God promised, crush the head of the serpent and set sinners free from the penalty and the power of sin. That was her purpose. And it may sound impossible. It may sound impossible that a virgin could deliver a baby that would save the world. And yet we agreed earlier, didn't we? Verse number 37 says that nothing is impossible for God. I want you to say that out loud with me like you believe it. Let's affirm it together. Nothing is impossible. Do it one more time. Like it's not 9.30 in the morning. Nothing is impossible for God. Don't ever forget that. Mary had one job. And her one job was to be the pure vessel through whom Christ would come into the world and keep the promise of Genesis 3.15 and crush the head of the serpent and set sinners free. And in exactly the same way. Just like Mary was chosen for a great purpose. Just like God had given her a great purpose. God has given to you and to me a great purpose. 
In the same way that God wanted to do a work through Mary's life, listen to me, God wants to do a work through your life. In the same way that Mary's life, seemingly insignificant, became unspeakably significant, God wants to take your life and mine and make our lives significant for his kingdom. He has a purpose. And I don't know exactly what his purpose would look like for each one of us, but I know some common things that would be true of his purpose for me and his purpose for you because they're things that were true of his purpose for Mary. Two things I would say. Number one, write it down. That like Mary, God's purpose for us will involve purity. I want you to know this, this Christmas season. She was to serve as the pure vessel to deliver Christ to the world. And while God chose her as a pure vessel to accomplish his purposes in the same way. His purpose for us will include his deepening purity within our lives. I've said this to you so many times, and I want to say it to you again, that to come to faith in Jesus, to hear the gospel, and to respond to the gospel, it is not an offer to be a Christianized version of what you've always been. It is an offer to experience a radically different life than you've ever known before because Christ is changing and transforming you from your fallen self into the likeness of his son and to the likeness of Jesus. Whatever God is doing in your life, I promise you it includes this. He is sanctifying and purifying you. He wants you to be more fully surrendered, more completely The Bible tells us this in Thessalonians. Paul wrote it in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse number 3. For this is the will of God for you, even your sanctification. It is God's will that our lives would continuously uh, continuously be being transformed. And so like Mary, God's will for our lives involves purity. But secondly, God's will for our lives and his purpose for us involves the presentation of Jesus. I promise you this, no matter no matter what you do with your days, no matter how you spend your, your work life, your work years, no matter what your endeavors are, no matter what your hobbies are, no matter how, how your, what your family looks like, I know this much, that whatever God's purpose is for your life, it includes this, to purify you and then to use your life to present Jesus to the world. In the same way that Mary was to be a pure servant of his purposes to carry Christ into the world, so is your purpose and mine to be pure servants of his who would carry forth Christ into the world. And so she had this great purpose, and we have the the same purpose. And so I want you to know, God wants to take your life as it is right now, no matter what it's like, no matter what you've come in here struggling with, no, no matter what your past looks like, no matter how discouraged or defeated you might be right now, no matter how bound up in sin you might be right now, I want to tell you what God wants to do. It is this desire to forgive your past, to radically transform your life, to set you free from the things that bind you and the things that the things that keep you bound up in sin, from sin patterns and addictions and depression to set you free from the darkness that clouds over your life, to remove your anger and to replace it with love, 
to soften your hard heart, to fill you with the fruit of his spirit, and to make your life a life that he might send into this world as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. This is God's desire, and it is his purpose for you. And you may say, well, that's impossible. God, God could never do that in my life. I could never be an ambassador for Christ. He could, he could never change me in those ways. Pastor, it's impossible. Can I remind you of verse 37? Can we affirm it out loud again? Can we say it together? Nothing. How many things? Nothing is impossible for God. It's not. And he wants to do this in your life. And so hear me clearly, when we think about Mary and the purpose that God had for her to be this pure one who would deliver Christ into the world, we can learn from her experience. We can learn from her encounter with Gabriel, the angel, and with her response to Gabriel. I think that Mary responded to Gabriel in a way that really we do very often. It, it was a progressive kind of uh, response. And I think we, we respond uh, progressively as well sometimes. Let me walk you through how she responded to him. So the angel, angel Gabriel comes in verse number 26 and, and uh, begins to speak to her. He's sent from, uh, from God to Nazareth to a virgin, verse 27 says. Uh, he comes to Nazareth, verse number 28, Hail thou that highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed are thou among women. And I want you to watch how she responds. Write it down. The first thing that she does is this. She says, she says, why would God be talking to me? Why would God be interested in me? Listen to what he says. Verse number 28. Hail thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And verse 29 says, when she sees him and she hears this, she's troubled. She's bothered. She's confused is what the word means. It's confused. And she wonders. The King James says she cast in her mind. It means she's going back and forth thinking in her mind. She's wondering in her mind, what, what is this all about? What's happening? Now, I think it's a safe bet that Mary had never seen an angel in her life. Would you agree with that? First time she sees an angel, he comes into her house or wherever she is and he, he announces to her that you are blessed among women, you have found favor with God. And immediately she's saying, favor with God. Why would God be sending an angel to speak to me? It's, it reveals her self-view. It reveals her belief that she was absolutely insignificant in what God might want to do in this world. Why would God send an angel to me? You know, Mary was probably 12, 13, maybe 14 years old. This was the marrying age in that culture, in that part of the world. She was a, a young teenager, maybe even, not even quite a teenager yet. And so she sees herself as this kid, this very young, insignificant person. She is from a no-name kind of family, even though she has the right lineage, her current family experience is a no-name kind of family from a backwater village called Nazareth. You remember, was it Nathaniel that asked the question, can any good thing 
come out of Nazareth. There was nothing good expected to come from Nazareth. Here's a young girl from a no-name family in a no-name backwater village, completely insignificant. God could surely never do anything great with her. And the angel Gabriel shows up and says, God's got his eye on you and you have found favor with him. And she's like, why, why would God even want to talk to me? Have you ever felt that way? But do you know what's true, what Paul tells us? Is that when God wants to do something, he typically chooses those that seemingly are insignificant. Can I read this to you? Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you can turn if you'd like to, but I just want to read a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians chapter uh, number 1, verse number 26. Listen to what he says. Paul's writing. He says, for you see your calling, brethren. He says, look around. You, you see who you are, don't you? There aren't many wise men after the flesh among you. There aren't many mighty men in your numbers. There aren't many noble that are called. But rather, God has chosen the foolish things of the world, those that the world considers foolish, to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. God has chosen the, the base things, the average and ordinary things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen those things, even the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Paul's making the point. Don't get the big head. If God is using you, don't think it's because you're so wise and mighty and strong and, and, and powerful. Because he says what God usually does is he chooses those of us who are not so great in the eyes of the world so that he might deliver his truth through us. Now, why would God do that? He tells us in the very next verse, verse 29, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. If y'all are listening, shout amen. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't have to choose the wisest, smartest, richest, most powerful. He can choose the weakest among us and do mighty acts and great things for eternity through those that are weak. It's his work. In fact, he goes on to say, I love how Paul concludes this thought. He says in verse number 30, but of him, even though you're weak and not so noble and not so wise and not so mighty, not so strong, but of him, that is of God or by God, you are in Christ Jesus, who by God is made unto us, that Christ is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that according as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. You see, Mary thought, I am so insignificant, God could never do anything with me. Why would God even be interested in me? And yet God was interested in Mary for that very reason. Because there was no glorying in Mary, but the glory rather was in the power of God through Mary. I have to say, I think this is where our Catholic friends have missed it in this near idolatry of Mary, of elevating her, because the beauty of God's using of Mary's life was not that she was so elevated. It was that she said, behold, I am the slave girl of the Lord. I am the servant of the Lord. She said, why, why would God be interested in me? The second uh, response that Mary gave back in Luke chapter number one, the second response that she gave to the angel was she said, how can I do what you're asking? It's a legitimate question. So he, the angel shows up. She says, I don't know why you're here talking to me because I'm, I'm insignificant. And then he says, well, God's chosen you. 
and you're going to deliver the Christ child. And then she asks a really legitimate question. What do you mean I'm going to have a baby? How can I have a baby? I'm a virgin. That's the question in verse number 34. It's, it's biologically impossible for me to do what you're saying I am to do. Have you ever said that, by the way? Don't answer out loud. Has God ever said to you, do this thing? Now, probably not with Gabriel showing up in your living room like he did with Mary, but through his word, God says, do this. And have you ever said, I can't do that. That's impossible for me. Lord, you, got, you must be talking to somebody else, right? So maybe God says, you are to go and be a witness for me. Go tell others about me. And you're like, that's not for me. I don't do that. Somebody else will have to do that. Or maybe God says, uh, trust me and tithe your income. I want you to put me first and honor me in your finance. You go, no, it's not me, Lord. I, I, I don't do that. Maybe a thousand other things. But God calls us to do something and we say, we can't do what you're asking. That's what Mary said. How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Now, Gabriel answered her question. He told her how it would be possible. Look at what the verse says. Verse number 34, she says, uh, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Listen to his answer, verse 35. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, shall come upon you, and the power of the highest shall overshadow you. Everybody, if you're listening, shout amen. amen. Whenever God says, I want to use your life, and you go, oh, not me, Lord, I can't do it. How's that possible? God has two answers for you, same answers he gave Mary. It's the Holy Spirit and the power of God. That's it. Well, wait a minute, if it's not me because I'm weak and not noble and not mighty and not strong, it's just his power and his spirit within me, then maybe God can use me. And he begins to bring her thinking around. Mary, the Holy Spirit is gonna come upon you. And Mary, the power of God is gonna overshadow you. And Mary, all you have to do is be a servant. God's gonna do the work. All you have to do is be his servant. See, this is what we need to learn, that if God is gonna use us, if we're gonna be servants for his purposes like Mary was, we need to remember that it is his spirit and his power that gets it done. It's true in every way, in every event, in every endeavor, that if anything is accomplished, it will be by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so you may say, well, you know, God couldn't use me. I'm incapable. Well, Mary was incapable of having a baby. I'm unable I, I'm to this, I'm to that, I'm too old, I'm too young, I'm, I'm to whatever. I'm used goods, I've messed up, I've fallen out of the way, I've backslid, I've, I've failed, I've whatever it is. Know this, that by the power of God and the power of working of his Holy Spirit, he can use your life for great purposes. She says to him, why would God be interested in me? I'm nothing. And how is this possible? Now the third thing then that she said, this is this, in this progressive response, is that she says to him in verse number 38, behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to your word. This is her amen. This is her surrender. Because she says to him, I am the servant of the Lord, so use me as you see fit. God, if you're interested in using my life, and if your power and your Holy Spirit will, in, will enable me, then, then just use me. See, once we get past the fear, once you get beyond the doubt, 
and you just believe that God can do anything, that nothing is impossible with God, and that if he says he wants to use you, he can use you by his Holy Spirit, once you get past the fear, then you just become this servant that says, well, amen. God, do what you want to do and use me for your glory. But I need to warn you. I need to tell you something. That that kind of surrender takes faith. It means you've got to trust the Lord. you imagine the surrender that it took for Mary to say, behold the handmaid of the Lord, go ahead, do this thing to me? She risked her reputation. People wouldn't believe that she had been pure. She risked her relationship with Joseph. She was offering the use of her body and all that a pregnancy means to her body. She could have even been risking her life according to the law of Moses. And yet she said, God, I'm yours. And she surrendered and she trusted him. In fact, when you go over to the Magnificat at the end of chapter number one, when she visits her cousin Elizabeth, look at verse 45, chapter one, verse 45. Elizabeth says to her, blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. Elizabeth says to her, Mary, because you believed, because you trusted in what Gabriel said to you. I don't know how Elizabeth knew it. God had revealed it. Maybe Mary told her and the text doesn't record that. I don't know. But she knew what the angel had said. And she said, because you believed, God is going to do this great thing through you. And loved ones, when you believe and trust in him, he will use you mightily. Use you greatly. Well, the final thing then that happened in her response, it's the final thing that happens in our responses as well is that she got past, why would God use me? I'm insignificant. She got beyond, I'm unable, I'm incapable. She understood his power and his spirit. She surrendered, amen, use me. And the number four, she got to where we all need to get, and that is she, she said, thank you. Thank you for using me. In fact, in verse number 46, in Mary's song, she says these words, Mary said, my soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. He, he knew what I was. He knew my, my insignificance. And yet he lifted me up. And behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. By the way, all the way back in verse number 26, 27, when the angel Gabriel said to her, You have found favor with God. You are blessed among women. You know what he, he didn't mean? He didn't mean you're the luckiest girl in the world. He didn't mean out of all the women in the world God could have chosen, he chose you, you're blessed. That's not what he meant. When he said, blessed art thou among women, he meant every woman will bless you. And that's what she affirms. From, from henceforth, all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done great things to me, through me. For he that is mighty hath done great things, and holy is his name. Do you understand that when God chooses a person, and he says, I want to do something, I'm going to make you my servant, I'm going to purify your life, and make you my servant, carry my son into the world, I'm going to do great things through your life. When he does that, at the end of the day, we get to this place where we finally say, I'm not mighty, he is mighty. I'm not holy, he is holy. I haven't done great things, he has done great things. And I will bless and his bless his name and rejoice in him. So hear me. It doesn't matter who you are. 
It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what your mistakes have been, what your failings are. It doesn't matter what the enemy has said to you and beaten you up with over and over and over and over again. It doesn't matter if you have said for years, I'm to this, to that, to the other. Know this, that if you know Christ is your Savior, you have deep significance in the purposes of Christ in this world. And if you, like Mary, will get past, well, not me, and I can't, and just say, Lord, I surrender, I trust you, use me. By his spirit, he will use you for his glory. And that will make 2023 a year of great impact through your life.